You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a, a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season, whether I was out west during my elk hunt, South Dakota mule deer hunt, or my rut vacation in Iowa. I was on my phone using Onyx Maps every part of the day, whether I was looking at terrain features uh, on the topographic and, and satellite maps that they offer on their uh uh, on their app, or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands, or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location, I used Onyx Maps every single day. And I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map. And uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before. I had to wait till sunup and then and then you know find it that way. But that problem does not exist anymore because of onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that i think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So, onyxmaps.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. Here we are, kicking it old school in the hotel, right, yeah. Frank? Yep, Pratt, Kansas. That's it. We have been uh, driving this afternoon. We've got an, an exciting consultation tomorrow um, that I, I'm I'm ready 
I'm ready for. I know you're probably kind of. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Ready to get out there. I'm as really well. jazzed for this one. Um, <laughs> I have uh, hunted west of Pratt, Kansas, my entire life since I was probably 12, and so this is uh, like a second home to me out here. We come out here about twice a year, so um, I'm excited to see this property. Uh, I know a lot about the landscape out here, so I'm excited to see what we're going to see tomorrow. Absolutely. No, I, I definitely am too. Um, one, that's just a beautiful dynamic landscape. And I think that it's so easy, certainly on aerials, to be able to just overlook and just pass by because it doesn't look like it's, oh, there were the corridors, this and that. It, it, it's patchy, it's CRP, but there's crop and then there's a lot of what looks like nothing. Mm-hmm. But when you get boots on the ground, it's vastly different from, from that. So it's always fun to kind of look at the aerial maybe build up some expectations and then get there and actually see what, what truthfully is going to, going to be right there before your eyes. Yeah. Really looking forward to it. So we're going to be looking at, at this property that the gentleman is interested in whitetails, but he's also wants game birds. And yeah, out here he can have Bob white quail and ringneck pheasant on the same property. And we're darn close to lesser prairie chicken country. Um, be interesting to see if there's any in the, in the area. Um, that would be just a great, addition to his Cherry property. On the top. Of, yeah, yeah. So No, I, I think it's tough to find that, that diversity of, of game bird species and then still have incredible white tail hunting. He's got that. Oh yeah. And and, and they're um all right here on, on several different little parcels that, that he's got access to. So tomorrow will be fun. But tonight we're talking broods. Brood habitat. Broods and brood habitat. So we're going to be talking about game birds, most specifically bobwhite quail, maybe touch on ringneck pheasant a little bit, and then yep. wild turkey. Uh, broods, kind of we, we call quail and pheasant chicks, we call those broods, so a, a group of chicks is a brood, but in, in wild turkeys we tend to call those poults. Yep. You know, so we may say both in this podcast, chicks for quail and pheasants and poults for, for wild turkeys, but a a conglomeration of those is a brood. That's what yes. we are calling a brood, a, a grouping of chicks or poults. And I think that it's important to start off that way by just simply defining what it is we're talking about because as we discussed on the drive out here, you have to describe what a pol- uh, what a, what a brood is because that information and the the significance of brood habitat and rearing broods is so incredibly important. But that information is lacking out there. Like there, there's just like this massive void of information revolving around just the successfully the successful rearing of broods whether you're looking at quail or you're looking at wild turkeys. And it seems, why, why do we forget about like the middleman in yeah. that? Because usually when you talk about maybe poor habitat, or poor numbers uh, for, for turkeys or quail, pheasants, you know, what always seems to get blamed is poor nesting habitat or predators that are taking adult birds. Mm-hmm. Those are all, you know, important factors to look at and examine on a landscape, right? But what what we honestly see is the the lack of focus of the middleman and that that window after something hatches. Can they get past into let's say six weeks or 
four months down the road? Can they be recruited into, let's say, an adult or juvenile stage to where now they're in the hunting population? Can they even get there? Right. And that middle stage is forgotten. Yeah, it's forgotten. And and the the thing about it is, is it takes a lot of specific resources to get a turkey poult or a quail chick from the egg to the harvestable stage. Oh man, we yeah. we think we tend to think about oh did they have a did they have a good nesting season this year, and that may be you know they may some may have a good nesting season some years may be a poor nesting season and then we worry about them when it comes time to hunt them. So what's our population look like of coveys that we can get into or what's the population of jakes and two and a half year old birds look like but what we often as you mentioned forget to think about is that brood stage when they're just hatched and that is that is super critical that can be as critical or more important in some cases than nest success and it takes a lot of specific resources and a lot of specific habitat types to get them from that nesting stage from that egg to that adult that we can eventually hunt and shoot the next fall or for turkeys a year or two later. And so what we want to do is we want to talk about that because, as you said, the focus is often not on that, and it's super important. And the cool thing is is that we can – there are some super easy habitat management techniques that we can Mm -hmm. use to make that good brood habitat and and really fill in that void – that is that is missing. I, I argue that at least from a quail standpoint, what we are the our biggest limiting factor is brood habitat mm. across the country. Yeah. I maintain that brood habitat is our biggest limiting factor. Now it may be different in Texas or maybe different in Florida, different places, but on the quail range as a whole, it's quality brood habitat is really our limiting factor. Absolutely. And it may seem kind of out of season, let's say, to talk about rearing broods that typically is going to take place in a lot of places, May, June, July, August, Mm -hmm. that window. But it's important what we do right now prepares and sets the stage for that time frame and for the birds to come to hatch successfully to then be able to take advantage of what we're doing right now. Yeah, that's right. So on the properties that, that I manage specifically, right now we are doing the, the management on the ground in the month of January and February so that we'll have quality brood cover on the ground in mm-hmm. June, July, and August. So mm-hmm. we are putting those, we are putting that into practice right now in preparation for that. If we wait too much longer we really won't have that good brood cover on the ground. So we've got Absolutely. to act now, and that's and that's what we're doing. We're, we're thinking about that because it's a huge, huge part of, of the quail prescriptions that I will will place on the properties that I manage. Certainly, certainly. And, uh, and we're going to get into what those techniques are, guys, as we get further into the podcast and kind of lay out, truthfully, what that even looks like, mm-hmm. what what's the vegetation type and, and the plant communities, how we're going to manage those. We'll get there, but for, for right now, let's kind of dive back into the um, the fact of how, how we're even getting to a brood becoming you know, or, or getting to the landscape, let's say to the point of being hatched. Because yeah. we can't not talk about nesting habitat 
or, or, or touch on it before getting to there. Because again, that's, that's, a, that's a one of those, let's say bookend deals that people want to focus a lot of energy onto. Um, but it may not be the, the, the most important, um, time frame. Right. And, and one of the things that we talked about earlier too was, was weather. Yep. And, and a lot of times weather gets, gets, associated with with nesting success but it may not be nesting success that really is the largest impact on weather so let's talk about nesting for quail and for wild turkey specifically bring in the pheasant aspect as yeah. well um and, and then we'll kind of guide our way into the the brood time frame yeah yeah so these game birds uh, these these females they are they are made to make nests mm-hmm. their their goal these these birds that have a high reproductive potential, like we're talking about most of our game birds, they are driven to reproduce and to have nests. And they will make nests and they will they will really, um, and I think we've all seen it, they will put them in a lot of weird places. So we think about, from a quail perspective, we often talk about good nesting habitat and having good nesting habitat. And there is a continuum from bad nesting habitat mm-hmm. to good nesting habitat. And and I would prefer that all of our nesting habitat was scattered clumps of little blue stem that quail could tuck a nest in. Sure. Well, it's not always that. Yeah. All right. I've seen quail nest in rank fescue fields. I've seen them nest in road ditches. Mm-hmm. I've seen them nest in fallow milo fields. So they'll put a nest. I've seen them nest under um, oak sprouts in a woodland. So oh, wow. they'll yeah. they'll put nests in a lot of different places. Some of these are are certainly less quality than others. Mm-hmm. But but the point is that nesting habitat usually is not limiting. Yeah. In that they're they will continue to put nests out there even if the habitat isn't great. Sure. Right? That's not limiting. Uh wild turkeys. We've stumbled into wild turkey nests, I know you have, mm-hmm. in lots of different places. Yeah. Rank open fields. Yes. Uh, creek down bottoms, trees. down trees. Again, there patches. Exactly. Anything, everything you can yeah. think of that would have any any type of cover that's zero to three four foot tall. Yeah, yeah, you'll find one in. Absolutely. So again, quail or turkeys are putting nests in a lot of different places. So nesting habitat is is critical to think about. It's important to think about. You need that that cover that's knee high or or, or so for those to birds to be able to to successfully put a nest and yes. have good overhead cover, right? But the point I guess I'm trying to make is that um, they'll nest in a lot of different places. But the most critical part then is what happens after that egg hatches, yeah. right? Yeah. So if, if and, and that's, again, the importance of good quality nesting habitat. So if a quail puts her nest in the middle of a rank fescue field, right, and it survives to hatch, well, what good is that if the brood then, when they are trying to move around simply can't because the field is too rank. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a good time to talk about physiology of these birds. So we think about a bobwhite quail. When it hatches, it's about the size of a bumblebee or about the size of your thumb. So think about that. Think how small that is. Tiny, minute. Super tiny. Yes. And think about its legs. Think about how short they are. Mm -hmm. Think about how frail they are and fragile to be that small. They're very, very skinny. They're very, very frail. So these critters can't fly at that age. The nope. mother is not going to pack them around. 
So they have to use their feet to move around. And so it's very important that when they hatch out and they take their first steps in the world, that they can move. And and when we're talking like first steps in the world, we're literally talking first steps. Like if they can't navigate through the right medium that should be present in a close position, distribution of the right habitat to good nesting habitat, they're simply not going to make it. No, you're, that's you're, that's critical. You're just you're not going to have that. Right. So, when when you think about management, literally, it's it's smaller than golf ball size yep. things that you need to be focusing on. That's the that's the importance and the scale of which details kind of need to be in place. However, nature is so perfectly designed, though, too, by creating disturbances and allowing then nature to take place. Oftentimes. It just is naturally created, mm-hmm. and, and so that's a that's one a positive note because it sounds like oh my gosh how could I manage something right. that gets right. born it's the size of a bumblebee yeah, yeah. are you kidding me but but truthfully nature will will take care of that yeah. and then the other thing is before getting too far into the brood aspect of it just to stop and pause for a second and like the sexual dimorphism between. Male birds and female birds. Mm-hmm. Female birds were made to nest. Absolutely. When you just look at the colorations yeah. of them, yeah. the buff colors, the lack of shininess, especially game birds that nest on the ground, yeah. they were made to nest on the ground in debris. Just look at the look at them. Yep. And you're like, how many how many quail? Or when you see quail, or if you drop one, or if you're trying to find a lost bird that you've shot without a without a good dog, you could look and look and yeah, look and hardly find it. It's tough. The camouflage, it, yeah, is absolutely, yeah. Unless it falls with its belly up and it's white, <laughs> it's super hard to see. And you know, you look at a male quail and a female quail, and there's not a ton of difference yeah. color wise, except the female has that buffy, yellowish buffy head, uh-huh. and a male has a bright bright white and black head. Well, that difference in that buffy yellow head makes all the, I mean, it makes all the difference when she's tucked on the ground. Sure. So that's her camouflage colorations. And we all know the difference between a ringneck pheasant male oh. and a female. I mean, completely, completely different. Wild, wild, uh, wild turkeys. Wild turkeys. Too. Yeah. Wild oh. turkeys. Uh, you know, the male's shiny, iridescent, you know, and then the Black female. Black tips yep. versus the brown yep. tan tips on the yeah. feathers. So, so these critters were, were designed to nest on the ground and to be camouflage and the chicks or the poults are the very same way. Mm-hmm. So when they're Definitely. hatched out, they are, um, you know, we, we, there's two different kinds of, of bird chicks. There's precocial yes. and, um, altricial. So the precocial ones are the ones that, that move out of the nest immediately. So the game birds we're talking yep. about, the altricial ones are the ones like cardinals or songbirds that stay in the nest. So they stay in the nest, and, and then mom goes yep, and gets food. Mom and dad brings food. Yeah. Where the precocial go and find the food yep, with mom. Go and find the food with mom. So that means that yeah, they they have a little more advantage over the altricial ones, where a snake can come in the nest and mm-hmm. eat everybody up. At least these guys can get away, but also they're at a disadvantage in that nobody's bringing food to them. That's They've right. got to go get food to themselves. So it goes back to that coloration. They they have a, a coloration that makes them super hard to see. Definitely. When they freeze on the ground, if you've ever got oh. into a group of a, yeah. a, a quail or, or a poult of, of of turkeys, when they freeze on the ground, you're 
pretty much you can't see them. No. Right. Unless they start moving or cheaping around a little bit, mm-hmm. you're, you can't see them. Prairie chickens are the same way. So these guys are designed to survive and thrive in this environment where they spend all their life on the ground and move around. But that design only works under certain habitat types. Bingo. Right? It doesn't exactly. work everywhere. Yeah. And, and and we'll throw out some numbers here um, throughout the podcast as to success rates of this. So so, so for, for turkeys, a uh, study out of Pennsylvania, 75 out of 100 birds nested hens. Okay. They, they, they laid nests, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when you go to actually looking at the success, so take those 75 birds, roughly, there's a couple different studies, but the average somewhere between 30 and 40% of those nests actually will hatch poults. Mm-hmm. So that 75 drastically yeah. went down, right? Just right. based on the 30 or 40% of those 75 out of the whole hundred population, mm-hmm. 75 nested 30 to 40% actually had poults that were hatched. Yeah. We'll get into what that next stage, the brood stage success was, but from a quail aspect, what does, what do those numbers look like, respectively? Yeah, so for a quail, most quail hens nest. It's it's pretty common for, out of a population of 100, you're going to get, you know, 95 of those are going to mm-hmm. at least produce a nest. They have a very, very high nest initiation rate. Right. Now, nest success varies across the country, and it varies depending on where you're at. It also varies depending on the weather. But on average across the country, nest success for bobwhite quail is about 40 to 60%. 60 would be on the high side. Very, very great nesting success would be on the 60s. 40 would be sort of on the low side. Now, a a troubling trend that, that we saw in Missouri is that in some of our landscapes, landscapes that we thought were pretty good nesting habitat, we're actually seeing nest success around 30%. Yeah. So we're even below that low end. Mm-hmm. So um, nest success can vary for, for, for Bob White's, but you can see that. Um, so it, you begin to think, well, if it's, if it's 40 to 60%, that's not very good. Why, why is that bird designed like that to only half of its of its nest hatch. Well, one thing to remember is that these birds are also built to re-nest. Yes. So if their first yes. nest fails, they can go ahead and re-nest. Now, there's some trouble with that you know, in terms of clutch size or whatever, mm-hmm. but the fact remains that they can re-nest. Yes. So, um, Likewise with turkeys. Yeah. Like probably, probably not to the same degree. Right. But they will. We yes. have seen it, and, and you'll have that certainly come into, into play. Yeah, so these, you know, these nest successes, they 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 seem, you know, fairly on on the on the low side, but they are usually adequate enough then to get the population ready to roll for a good fall. Mm-hmm. But then we move into another supercritical part. Yeah, it doesn't matter if all fifteen of fifteen quail ne- eggs in a nest hatch. What good does that do? if then zero out of 15 survive to be adults because the brood habitat is so low. And that is something that quail managers like myself and, and hunters I know have long 
paid too little attention to and that we need to really start thinking about that brood habitat and how specific it is and how super important it is for the future of the population that we want to hunt come November or December. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's super, super important to not forget about that that middle ground. How do you go from this this nest hatch stage to that juvenile getting into let's say that that adult population because we just we just miss it and it's so mm-hmm. easy to forget about it. it's like oh they hatched great now they're golden right yep, right no but that world is so scary and everything literally everything wants to eat them yeah think about a a nest you think oh you know you hear the word nest predator a lot right mm-hmm. well the thing that was a nest predator is now a pulp predator and mm-hmm. now the avian aspect yep comes into play for the pulse. So now there's even more things, you know, there was a fear during the nest of getting, you know, eaten and -hmm. consumed. Now there's, there's twice as many things, things that are on the ground and in the air that want to, to eat it. Yep. Yeah. They don't have a defense. (laughs) No, their, their defense is, is, is us with providing good habitat for mitigating against those predators with good habitat. They have a defense where they can freeze in place and blend in, but that doesn't always work, of course. And then the little rascals, they can't fly until they're two weeks of old and two weeks of age. Yep. And then they can't fly very well at that. They can just make short fluttering flights and and turkeys at least can jump into a tree at two weeks old, but quail don't. Um so they are they are super vulnerable. So they you know the the point we're trying to make is is just how vulnerable these guys are once they're hatched that you know once the hen hatches these guys you know the work really just begins at that point because she's got a huge responsibility too yeah um because these guys these little chicks they cannot thermoregulate their temperatures yes. until yes. about 2 weeks old right. right and so that's where a lot of brood losses happen is during that first two weeks when they can't thermoregulate, and we'll talk about that too. But the the, the point we're trying to make is uh, from from a from a nest to a harvestable animal, there is a lot that goes on and a lot we need to think about in terms of management and how to promote those birds into our hunting population. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's a good time to to bring that weather aspect in because we can't control it. No, we, we certainly can't. And, and and one of the things that I feel like the finger gets pointed and blamed at is, okay, let's say you have a wet spring. A lot of times that the association of a wet spring means nest failures. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of times where these birds aren't nesting in areas that are going to flood. Right. Right. Oh, there's only right. a certain portion that, that will flood. And there's a lot of upland that doesn't. Yeah. But there also is the aspect of, okay, well, if a hen is sitting there, um, uh, she's wet, she's going to smell more, like all these different factors play in. But but truthfully, a wet spring is very damaging on the poults themselves yep. because of what you just talked about. They cannot thermoregulate. They don't have the uh, feather development once they're wet. They're wet. They're done. They're wet. Yeah. Um, So to go back to nesting in a a minute, you know, we hear that um, this idea of of the nest getting flooded out. Well, you know, my nests are in the upland. They didn't get flooded out, you know, so I I should be okay. Well, that's 
there, there's a lot, there's a lot more that goes into that. Yeah. Um, flooding of quail nests is actually pretty uncommon. We monitored 500 quail nests in Missouri mm-hmm. and only had two over a series of five wet springs, um, or, or over a five year period that was abnormally wet during the spring. We only had two nests that were actually flooded that were laid in a low enough spot that they were covered with water and flooded. Two, two out of 500. Two out of 500, yeah. So <laughs> that's, um, that's so the, the flooding, right, the, the flooding of, of quail nests is mm-hmm. generally not a huge deal. Now, turkeys are a little different. Certainly. They'll tend to nest in some more low-lying areas, and they tend to nest earlier when maybe yes. some of our more flooding rains happen. But um, the real problem with rain begins when these animals or when these birds are hatched because they can't thermoregulate. Yep. And so when they get wet, their body temperature drops and they can get hypothermia unless the hen can brood them. And that's why it's called a brood, right? Right. Because she puts her wings out. Right around them. Those little guys get tucked up under her wings and under her feathers, and she'll ride a storm out with all 15 quail chicks under her wings if she can, or all 12 turkey poults under her wings if she can uh, but if she can't successfully brood them or the habitat is so poor that no matter if she can successfully brood them they're still getting wet beyond what she can protect yeah they will get hypothermia they will die of exposure so a, a wet spring really can hamper game bird populations uh, about as much as 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 anything that we we can think of absolutely and and it's not just it's not just a big rainfall event so there was some research done in georgia on quail georgia and florida where a a repeated rainfall so like a quarter inch one day a quarter inch the next and a quarter inch two days later actually saw more chick loss than one two inch rain over one day so staying repeatedly wet Mm, over a series of days periods. yeah was more harmful than a two inch rain that that Makes happened sense. in a in a morning or an afternoon so not so i guess the point is is we need to always be careful about um looking at these these high rainfall events where rain falls quickly over a period of time we get one or two inches but also these small rainfall events that occur over a two or three day period those are pretty detrimental too absolutely yeah, because I mean, the whole the whole point is the thermal yes, regulation. Absolutely. So you have to have sun to be able yes. to dry this, these these birds out. Without the sun, they're going to <laughs> not fare well through the hypothermia aspect of of being wet for extended periods of time. Yeah, wet, damp, cool does not work out well. Yeah, let me tell you a story of just how critical it is for these birds to stay dry and to get dry as quickly as possible. Uh, we we had. In our Missouri quail study, yep. we had one spring, and it, this was in April, so we had all of our birds radio collared over five different sites. We had one day, it was during it was during late spring, I think it was April 27th, it was right during the heart of turkey season, we had a 10-inch rain over about a 36-hour period, Yeah, right? And on every study site, we found adult quail that were dead, due to having never being able to get dry. So these were adult quail. These were quail that were hatched the previous year, Mm -hmm. made it through the winter just fine, fully adults, fully feathered. But we had, we lost 12% of our radio collared birds 
in that rain event because they just couldn't get dry and they wow. just and the temperature never got below about 60 degrees during that period but they just stayed so wet for so long and they couldn't get dry and these guys were adults so just think about the little guys that yeah. aren't fully feathered how how detrimental rainfall can be for them That'd now be- as you said we can't control that weather but we can do some things to maybe prevent them from getting as wet or provide some overhead cover that that at least mitigates some of those rainfall factors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so that that then goes into, okay, we got weather. We understand what nesting cover looks like. We're, we're getting into understanding the significance of of a, the brood time frame where, where they're hatched and they're out on the ground and they're trying to they're trying to find food and they're trying to stay in cover. They're still trying to stay dry. So when we talk about this next step, uh, that's the focus of the podcast. I think it's important to establish what does this look like? Like if it's so gone from the landscape, help me as a listener to picture what quality brood cover looks like yeah and forage because we're going to bring that into the into the discussion as well because the cover and the vegetation goes right into the forage aspect too yeah. so yeah. Let, let's let's kind of cover what exactly this is going to look like actually boots on the ground on the landscape okay so let's let's think about our landscape first as a continuum um, so on one side say on the left side of this continuum we have very, very, very short grass, almost dirt. And then on the very right side of the continuum, we have closed canopy hardwood forest, right? So look around the landscape where you're at, and I'll bet you that either that about 75 to 80% of the landscape is on the left side or the right side of the continuum. I would agree 100%. Yep, it's either dirt, crop fields, crop crop fields, or very, very short grazed pastures, or it's closed canopy hardwoods, forest, or pine, or whatever. So think about that in the middle. There's very, very little of that in the middle. So we're talking about knee-high to waist-high grass, or forbs, or shrubby cover. The the combination of all of those things mixed together. Yep. We're talking about uh, the plant communities that support this, the diversity that's on the landscape, or or let's say hopefully on the landscape. Yeah. but that vegetation, from a height standpoint, hips and down, yeah. basically. Yeah. So so look at the landscape and see just how little of that is out there. And, and you can see just how my argument of, of quail being limited most by, by lack of brood cover has some, has some validity or has yeah. some merit. Because it's just not there. Yeah. So what we're talking about for brood cover is a couple of things. Again, remember how small these guys are. Yep. Remember how how they have how they have frail legs and they can't thermoregulate. So but what what we want is we want vegetation that provides a good canopy over their head mm-hmm. so they can be protected from threats from above and also have some umbrella plants that Matt or that Adam likes to talk about a lot. So this umbrella sort of acts to mitigate against some of that rainfall, yep. right? But, but also but, of the visual aspects yes. of things as well. Yeah. But we don't want it to be too thick such that they can't move around it. Yeah. And so what's one thing that comes to my mind when I when I 
talk about that or a plant that perfectly describes that is, is a patch of ragweeds, Perfect. right? Absolutely. Provides that overhead canopy, but it's not dense enough that they can't move through it. Yep. Uh, a patch of uh, blackberries that's pretty that's pretty dense or, or not or pretty sparse at ground level sort of has that same mm-hmm. structure. Goldenrod. Goldenrod has that same colonies, structure. Yep. Yeah. So I guess the point we're trying to make is is weeds, forbs, uh, provide that vegetation structure that we're looking for. So good weedy cover. Weedy patches that people tend to think are ugly on the landscape or, oh, that's a weed. We don't want that around. Those are magnets Absolutely. For, for these kind of birds, and they provide the type of structure that are, that's so critical, mm-hmm. right? So the structure is important is that that overhead canopy sparse enough for them to move through, right? But also it's very, very important to think about what these, what these little guys are eating for the first two weeks of their life and actually really for the first three to four months of their yes. lives, what the yes. majority of their diet is, and that's insects. It's absolutely insects. And so it's like, okay, I understand height-wise what you guys are talking about, getting the picture now of of the the canopy coverage, but the, the spatialness underneath of that canopy for these chicks and poults to be able to navigate um, but yet still be protected. Um, so, so what does what does that mean for me as a as a person who wants to create that? Um, how how do how do we go about that? And I know that's a question that that's in their head right now. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll get there. But what's also important is to look at what else does this mean for a quail or a a turkey? So what my head is. Okay, if if it's knee high, right, a poult that that's two three weeks old, um, shoot, give it a month old at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To me, this is one just kind of cool connection that just my head is, is super fun to make. Um, like, wow, gosh, gosh, God did it right, right? Yeah. The, the the when he when he created all this is you know you think about like a an area that maybe you burnt it in in March, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. By the time this window rolls around. Maybe it's late May, middle of June. Turkeys are are out of the nest, um, or some are still being hatched. You have you have this vegetation that's already there on the landscape. Like it it came in, mm-hmm. at responded to that fire, and it's growing. And as it's growing, and poults are getting older, you're starting to get that canopy and those plants developing at the right stages. Yeah. And then in come the insects that are responding also to that vegetation as it's beginning to grow and develop and they're foraging on it. But then as they're foraging on it, the pulps are foraging in on the insects that these plants are providing. And and it's just this like crazy, but wonderful mixture of of nature working to supply and lean on each other. Yeah. Like we we don't, we don't have to plant that kind of stuff. We just have to manage for it. We have to have back to, we always talk about the appropriate disturbances at the right time of year to promote these things. Mm-hmm. And, and nature, way back when, did it right. Yeah. You know, we had buffalo that grazed. We had fires that came through. And it was just there. Yep. You know, it sounds super, super complex that all these things have to fall into place. But literally, if, if we just manage the landscape for, for what it is and what it can offer... The rest falls into place. Yeah. Mother Nature just it's it goes off of cues. Right. And that's the beauty of it, is like 
we just kind of set it on in the right path and yeah. and it just takes over. Yeah. Yeah. So all this maturing and and developing of plants that we're talking about seems like mind blowing, but take ease because it it's most likely naturally going yeah. to happen. Yeah. It's it's cool how you, how you how you just described that because these things are happening sort of in proportion with each other. The yeah. the plants get a little bit of a head start right. while the quail or the turkeys or pheasants are in the nest. And then as they hatch, they kind of grow in proportion, right? That's exactly they right. They grow in proportion until the animal that we're talking about doesn't out, kind of outgrows that and, or, or gets to where it needs to be. And then it stops growing. Yeah. Right. So it grows in proportion, and and that that's a beautiful way to put it. I, I think I, I never kind of really thought of it that way. So I, I, I appreciate that. But um, it, this stuff has been designed, and and disturbance is what brings it on. Yeah. You mentioned grazing appropriately uh, brings it on. Fire brings it on. The plow can bring it on. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these disturbances can bring it on. And what we're really want to see is is weeds that's it we want to see forbs we want to see legumes um grass eh, it's decent brood cover but grass they it doesn't attract as many insects correct as as uh weeds and so as legumes and forbs do and it certainly doesn't put on a hard seed to get these birds through the winter that we want. That we and does want not to get. have that canopy structure yep. either. And it's, it's mostly just grows straight yeah. vertical. Yeah, it's, it's perfect for nesting, perfect sure. for nests, but for broods, it, it's lacking. So we really want to see legumes and forbs uh, because they attract so many insects, and yep. these insects are protein-packed food items that these birds absolutely need. I know quail chicks feed almost exclusively on insects the first two weeks of their life. They need these little protein nuggets to just to, to start promoting feather growth, putting yep. on fat, and just to grow as quickly as possible. And past the two weeks, while they they can pick up some greens and they can pick up some seeds that are that have matured early, they're still way up there, sixty, eighty percent on insects. Oh yeah. yeah. I think I think turkey poults for their first like 4 weeks of life it's 70% insects and and if I was something of that size and that vulnerable maybe I can't fly yet. I can't I I need to develop myself. You better you better look out cuz I'm going to be trying to eat all the best stuff that I can yep. to be able to then defend myself or be able to get away evade the predators that are out there. Yeah. So I have to be in the right landscape and the right uh, vegetation to be able to hide, but then also forage. And once I do that, then I will be able to maybe um, branch out and, and, and get to some areas that um, I'm foraging on other species. And I can maybe pitch into a, a shrub that will mm-hmm. provide me cover, get off, off the ground for a quick minute, and then you know get back down. Yep. But you almost have to like put yourself... Once you learn the the steps of of this um, maturing or development stage, you have to like put yourself in those shoes because if, if if you can't imagine what their let's say life cycle going through, you're you're not going to be able to I think honestly manage adequately enough for it. Right. If you can't that's, picture it, that's right. You can't create something that you can't picture. That's right. A good artist has like an idea of what it is that they're going to draw or paint. But the same thing here in the landscape, the landscape is, is a canvas. You got to be able to imagine what needs to be there and then create it. 
You can't do that without not knowing what they need. Right, right. That's right. You know, it's we we think about um, brood cover, and we're going to talk about how to, how to create it. But let's think about. I, I know a lot of listeners will, um, if they're older, you know, if they're in you know fifty, sixty years old plus, they can remember, if, especially if they were a bird hunter, even if they weren't, and they heard stories yeah. of this heyday of quail where quail were just a part of the landscape yeah. they were as much a part of the landscape as anything else was right? crows they, are now yeah they just were there right, <laughs> right. W- without any without any special management but you need to think about that think about on a on an agricultural landscape if you had a a farmer that didn't have roundup ready crops right yeah or he didn't have um great cultivating um instruments or implements yeah. well, think or, about or, wh- or or uh um oh gosh uh gps yeah yeah to to map out yes certain acres and and uh just farm more efficiently yeah. right. or effectively right. across every acre that he owns absolutely so what would then happen to that field that was tilled up in the in the spring or, or late winter early spring planted to a crop wasn't used herbicide on it wasn't cultivated really well Mm -hmm. his crop would grow but also would grow weeds pigweed ragweed foxtail whatever yep well that was great brood habitat that was mare's tail that was outstanding brood habitat and so with that widely scattered across the landscape and with fence rows that weren't farmed all the way to Mm -hmm. there was a barrier of of weeds then you could see how quail did explode on that landscape that's the type of that's the type of of habitat or that's the type of vegetation and structure and composition to, to think about. Think about a field that has been plowed up and for whatever reason wasn't planted to crops. Well, it comes back got in too wet. Or yeah, something. it got too wet. It comes back in, in ragweed or whatever. For instance, in North Missouri in 2015, we had a wet, a wet early spring. Yeah. Right. So a lot of farmers had their fields prepared but they couldn't get in to put, plant their crops. Yeah. So these fields went fallow. We saw an ex- quail explosion in a lot of mm-hmm. these places because brood habitat was all across the landscape, yeah. and so brood survival was off the charts. That didn't impact the nesting habitat. Nope. That was already set and done. The habitat, this was brood. Yes. And so the we saw this explosion of quail because brood survival was so much better because there was a landscape of brood habitat. We see this in our open um, landscapes today. So like western Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, mm-hmm. and a lot of these grazing landscapes. When they get adequate rain and the weeds are flush across the, the landscape, the brood survival goes way up because the habitat is there across the landscape. So yeah. that's what I'm, I think I'm trying to get the listeners to, to picture yeah, is that landscape where you've got hip-high weeds that provide a canopy across a landscape or, or or a fairly good size that is what we're talking about brood cover and think about that now where you're at and and, and see if there's very much of that around yeah you probably have to drive a long way to will. see you probably but, will but then that's the other important factor is it has to be spatially adequate on the landscape it can't just be present in this you know uh, bedroom size area right we we need larger areas than that you yeah. you need areas that are connected to other areas to not only 
get a population, but sustain a population in that area for, for certain years. You have to have it spatially in, in the right distribution to make these critters go from young and in, into uh, recruiting them into the, the hunting or um, age class, let's say. Yeah. So it, it's not just uh, that you see some of it out there. It's, it's how is it associated with the other habitat types right. or cover Hopefully it's there in, in ample supply, but it's not yeah. because we're, it, because it, we're it, seeing a decrease. Yeah. We're seeing a decrease in quail populations. We're seeing a decrease in a lot of places uh, in turkey populations right. for, for a ton of different factors. However, that's why we're doing this podcast because we know for certainty brood rearing cover is limited and decreasing yes. on the landscape. Yes, brood rearing cover is limited. Is limited. I, I live in the, and you do too, Matt, but I live further south in Missouri, west than, than, than Matt does. But uh, our turkey population in south Missouri is is struggling. I mean, we still have birds. A guy can go out and, and, and kill birds, but it's not what it was a yeah. decade ago, right? Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of, probably several reasons for that, one of which is a series of wet springs, maybe increased predators. But I, I know... It's when you go across our landscapes, any nests that do hatch, those poults really have poor brood habitat in front of them. Yeah. Our brood habitat is so poor on our private lands because of the way the lands are used. Either it's yep. close canopy hardwood or it's close graze fescue. And and, you and know, it, go back to the spectrum real quick. That's on, yeah. on the very far outside edges. There's, right. there's none of that middle ground right. again. So we have lots of horned larks because we've got <laughs> great horned lark yeah. habitat. Yeah. And we've got lots of barred owls, right? Yeah, because exactly. we've got great barred owl habitat. Yeah. But the stuff that we really, really want in the middle, we're lacking. And, 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 and the cool thing, and I think we've kind of beat around the bush a little bit, is, is that, that we can create that brood habitat. Mm-hmm. It's, it's available. It's not difficult to create if we use a few certain tools to, to make it happen we we can create it and we can make it happen fairly easily and fairly quickly absolutely and we talked about it real quick before we jump into let's say let's say how um how we do that what are, what are those steps look like but we talked about like the this is the wild turkey and, yeah. and its structure the way it grows and its body shape when when we're looking at the the hen itself and it's trying to rear poults mm-hmm. there's so much communication between you know let's say the the hen and the poults right. or you know the um uh the bob white and and her chicks yep soft communication that we would hardly ever be able to hear unless unless you're in and around them all the time right but they're on 100 percent lookout i mean they're keyed up when they have poults around them but from a turkey's aspect her poults are up underneath of her and in and around her, following her through these fields. Umbrella-shaped, like, vegetation for rearing them is where they're going to, one, just focus at, right? Mm-hmm. But her head the whole time is up above that mm-hmm. for, for, for most of the year until it gets, you know, way over uh, overgrown or, or, or thick. But then they're moving on to other uh, habitat types that they're frequenting. However... The whole time her head is up and looking around 360, it's always, it's always looking, but her body at the same time is covered mm-hmm. because it's underneath of all that vegetation. Right. So, just looking at 
a turkey itself and the way it grows can help you determine height-wise, structure-wise, what needs to be there. Like, she needs to be able to walk through this. It's not like it can be just 100% thick saplings that are, you know, two foot tall. Right. That's not what we're talking about. Right. You have to be able to, to navigate through it. Yes. So just look at body shape and then their design and design of the pulse and camouflage and all, you know, like you said earlier, the their legs, their, their size, like you have to be able to put yourself in their place to be able to manage for them. So how do, how do we manage yeah. for them? How do we get that habitat on the landscape? Yeah, so that's it. the the techniques that we'll talk about will will work uh, across the landscape, but depending on what your vegetation look looks like at first, or the vegetation you're dealing with, will determine what technique you're going to use. So. Let's talk about one side of the continuum. We've got, let's say that we've got um, a native warm season grass planting. Maybe it's like we're going to go look at CRP tomorrow, yeah, right? Yep. So let's let's think about CRP anywhere west of a line from, say, where we are in Pratt, Kansas, or excuse me, east of a line from Pratt East, where yep. we get rainfall that's in the 30 to 40 inch yep. rain. So that native grass was planted in the first three or four years that it was planted, we probably saw a pretty good quail response. Sure. Because that grass patch was weedy. Mm-hmm. It it started out poor. The weeds kind of had the first go around because they're the first guys that came on. The grass were struggling around trying to find their place. And by about year three, the grass had taken over. The weeds had, had went down. And I'll bet you our quail numbers went down too. Probably. Right. Well, so let's think about that. Think about we have a, a, a CRP field or a native warm season grass field that's got big blue stem, little blue stem, Indian grass, maybe some switchgrass. Well, think about a quail chick hatched in that grass. Think about its chances of getting its of finding its way out of there. From it, it's not it's no. it's it's de- DOA right. As soon yep. as they're hatched. Very few of them are going to have the ability to navigate through that. I think right? it's, it's very difficult for sometimes people just to understand the thatch yeah, the, that accumulates. Right, right. We're, talk, we're talking grasses that are five, six, sometimes seven foot tall. Yep. Where does it go? Yeah. It's on the ground. Right. If that's on the ground, navigation yeah. is horrible. Right. Well, try walking through it yourself. <laughs> yeah. See how tired you get. Exactly. So. What we would do there is if we, one of the things, if we had the ability to graze it, we would graze it, yeah. right? Yep. But first, what I would probably do is I would would block it out into either a half or a third and burn it, yep. right, to remove that thatch. Yep. And even if we only burned it, we're going to get a flush of weeds. And what time of the year when you're saying burn that? Let, let's break that down. Well, you know, it's... And there's a lot of... There's, there's, a, there's a lot of that, so... Yeah. A lot of people say you want to burn warm season grass in the summer. So July, August, September, even in the fall into October, that will reduce that will re- reduce your grass density. Yep. Um, improve forb production. Improve forb production, and 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 what we see with what we've seen with quail is is yeah, you'll probably get a few more forbs if you burn in September. Respond versus if you burn in March. Mm-hmm. But the quail use it just the same, right? The so usage didn't change. Uses didn't change. So summer and fall burning is not a silver bullet to quail management, as right. a lot of folks out there are saying it is. We just need more summer burning on the landscape, 
and our quail numbers will increase. We get a little bit better woody control. We get a little more forbs. Yep. But from a quail response, just, it's it's not w- what it's touted to be. Just, right? just going to burst some bubbles out there yeah, today. Right, right. There, there, there's no like silver bullets Absolutely. in land management. I, I, yeah, there's just not. You, you can look, you can search, you can, you can try and f- figure all this stuff out, or, or, or figure one, one thing, one key component to, to just make all this happen. But yeah, as you can tell, as we spent, I don't know, probably forty-five minutes talking already. Yeah, how complex it is it's, to yeah. go from from hatch to to where we're at now. Yeah, you got to have so many different things. You, you cannot just think. I'm going to do this, and the response is going to be enough or sufficient to carry me for for years. It's again, it's a it's a community plant community development and management style. Not one species is going to do it. Not one technique is going to do it. You have to be able to adapt your techniques to your landscape as it changes. Yeah, right. So you get back to that that question. Um, when to burn i would burn probably whenever during the dormant season that i got a chance to if when I, conditions if, are right yeah if when conditions are right if i could burn in october i'd do it or yeah. if i could burn in march i would do it but some some time during that period to get it to get it burned yep and then if that's all you did you're still going to see a re- reduction in thatch reduction in grass density more bare ground more forbs and the quail are going to be able to move through it the yep. chicks are yep. right if you combine that with some light to moderate grazing, mm-hmm. oh man, then you're really setting the table. In in, in what time frame? Let's talk about so, the, the grazing time yeah, frame. Yeah, light to moderate grazing anywhere from mid-April through about the last part of August. Yep. Something in there. So we're not talking year-long grazing in, in especially in, on these the warm season. Right. CRP right. we're still on that. Yeah. Yeah, landscape. we're still on these on these warm season landscapes and even if it's native prairie, let's talk yeah. about that. It could be native prairie. It would still yeah. it would still apply. We're talking about grazing these grasses when they're actively growing. Um, that would be that would probably be the number one thing. If I didn't have access to to cattle, if fire was a problem for a host of reasons, could go through there with a disc or a plow and plow some of that up. Yep. Grass is not sacred. I hear that a lot. Oh, I can't oh, yeah. plow that up. I planted that warm season grass field. I can't plow it up. I assure you, <laughs> three years after you plowed back up. You won't even know that you plowed it, right? And, and when we say plow, we're not talking like deep soil stuff. No, we're, talk, right. we're talking run a disc through yes. the top four inches, six yep. inches, maybe. Yep. And just set it back. Let's let's expose a little bit of dirt. Weeds are to come in as soon as the soil temperature gets right. And there's your canopy. Yep. There's yep. your insects that were coming in. Yeah. the The vegetation that we want to respond is often in the seed bank or in the root bank, ready, ready to go, yep. right? So that would be what I would, those techniques would be what I would recommend if I had a native warm season grass stand or a native pasture or native prairie that I wanted to manage for quail. Um, Specifically improving brood rearing cover for the months of late May all the way through till August. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's prime time window for broods, but also prime time for the management strategies that you could do right now and or prepare to bring cattle in that is going to improve those conditions for broods during that window. Yep. That's right. That's right. So let's say we've got let's say we've got a, a, a mixed piece of property that is 
that we've got some warm season grass or we've got an old pasture or we've got an old field or something like that. Um, again, the same thing applies if you if you burn it. So let's take old field situation. So a field that was was once a crop crop ground and it's grown up, mm-hmm. but it's become a too thick for brood habitat. Go in and burn a portion of that, or run a run a disc through a bunch of that. Turn yep. it over. You know, just treat it as I'm. I'm going to prepare this field as if I was going to plant it, but then I don't plant it. Yeah. Then you're going to get a flush of ragweed. You're going to get a flush of mare's tail. You're going to get a flush of cool stuff. And in a situation like that where you're not starting with rank warm season grasses, your disturbance is going to get by you more quality brood rearing habitat over time. Yes. Because you don't have all that grass coming in. Yes. Eventually it will succeed into broom sedge or something like that, and you may have to turn it over again. But you can probably do it every three or four years instead of every two to three, something like that. So there's a common theme here that we're talking about for quail is the fire, a disc, or or grazing, right? Mm -hmm. Turkeys, say we got a woodlot that we want to do. Absolutely. Right? I mean, you guys talk about that all the time in your podcast. You guys talking about going to to make a a bedding thicket. Yeah. Well, what you've done is you've made a one-acre bedding thicket, but you've made a great one-acre brood patch. Yes. Right. Absolutely. We're, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have maybe prescribed fire that's run through that after it's been cut. If not, oh well. We're just gonna have a massive amount of sunlight. Eighty percent of that that acre that that area we cut is going to spur on with annual weeds, mm-hmm. and we're gonna have insects buzzing through there. We're going to have pulse up underneath of the canopy. We probably, and th- this is you know, when we talk about the distribution of nesting to brood rearing cover. Let's think about that from a turkey standpoint. We've got treetops all laid down right mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. So literally, as as that pult is hatched, they're taking steps up underneath of a, of a canopy that has been felled and then moving out among this quote-unquote bedding area that was for deer right? Mm-hmm, right now they're bedding now excuse me bedding. now they're walking out underneath of the annual weeds and yeah. production that is that is forage for deer but it's also cover for turkey poults but that's bringing in the insect life that's mm-hmm. helping get these broods on into uh the the hunting season so what was good for deer also will work for turkeys in a woodlot situation but one of the things that we have seen that goes just so far into the broodering, let's say quality, is aggressive edge feathering mm-hmm. in and around existing openings. Yes. Oftentimes, you, like, you'll see turkeys in the summertime orienting themselves or frequenting around clover, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's great reasons why. One, it's clover. Yep. Okay, more adult turkeys are eating forage-based you know, during that time frame, but they're also relying heavily on insect life. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that a clover, a good growing clover field, you're going to get some weeds in there. Yep. That's why we don't we don't despise weeds in clover fields because, my gosh, it's fantastic for turkeys. Mm-hmm. We plant wheat in those in those clover fields the fall prior. Seeds are maturing and hanging down, perfect um, uh, height for hens and gobblers and and jakes, whatever, to go in and feed. But then underneath of that, chicks are working in there. It's mm-hmm. bringing in the insects. But right on the edge, if we have edge feathered, we have treetops. Mm-hmm. We have grasses. We have brambles. We have annual weeds, ragweed growing all along the edges or in the food plot itself. 
So you've got that cover that they can run to, but they're foraging right next to it. Yeah. So literally, where where these food plots are that have been edge feathered aggressively, and I can guarantee. I mean, everyone can imagine right now food plot edges that there's areas that are really poor timber, probably in close proximity. Mm-hmm. Go and cut the tar out of that. Mm-hmm. Cut it. What it, What is it doing right now? It's probably right. out of reach for deer. Yep. It's not providing any great habitat for any of the other species we've mentioned. Right. Make that a great brooding area. Yep. And and you could do that right now. We're, chainsaws should be running and firing up right now, now through through March. Get yep. them fired up. Now, you're, now you've got brood rearing cover in close proximity to higher quality food. Do you need that food plot? No. If that was a, an old field area, fantastic. Yeah. But now you have old field, like early successional cover blends into more woody structure that then goes deeper into the timber. A brood can hang out there all summer long Yeah, and, right. and, and be, and have cover and, and a ton of forage and you're golden. Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- that's exactly right. And also think about a, a closed canopy woodlot that, or, 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 piece of timber um, that you say you go in and you do a a timber harvest and you follow that up with the prescribed fire that produces really good brood habitat for a year or two yes because because you know and a lot of people don't know know it because we don't see that anymore but most of our closed canopy timber has a seed source or a root bank of little blue stem, yes. broom sedge, ragweed, desmodiums, lespedezas, waiting for its chance, waiting for its sunlight. Because historically, yes, that was an open woodland for the most part in in eastern North America. Right? Yeah. It was mostly it was open woodland or to savanna, some kind of continuum there. But the bottom line is it had an herbaceous understory yes. of grasses and weeds. Go look at most of the timber today. From the Ozarks to the East Coast, you will not see any herbaceous no, understory. You see sticks and logs yeah, and leaves. It, yes, and that That's does it. nobody any good. It may no. do an oven bird some good, right? You know, or but it doesn't do game birds any good. It doesn't do white-tailed deer any good. So treat that timber with a, a, a harvest, a TSI, a prescribed fire, and you'll be amazed at the response of herbaceous habitat it, you'll get. And the turkeys will just love it. And and I think that that's a very common misunderstanding of, oh, I logged the property and there's no more turkeys here. I, I don't see that at all. I, I don't see that response from turkeys based on what we've done, what clients have done. Mm-hmm. That's such an important and critical role. Now, now, if that's the only – if you do – if all you have is timber and you just clear cut the entire thing, well, yeah, that's going to change drastically in the five-year period. You're going right. from – uh, you know, uh, um, a clear cut into super young forest, and, and that changes drastically in a matter of growing seasons here in our in our climate and region. But for the most part, if you're open up the canopy, and I think that that's the other like misunderstanding of ragweed. You see it all the time on edges of fields, mm-hmm. and um, pokeberry, and uh, what's the other? Um, Mayor's tail mm-hmm. all the time. You see it in fields, fields, fields. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest things that we found after a logging operation was those two species, mayor's tail and ragweed, 
all throughout what was timbered acres after prescribed fire. Yeah. Or or right. or if it if it wasn't one year, it wasn't even before uh, or excuse me after prescribed fire. It was simply um, along skitter trails yep. where there was a disturbance, treetops, yep. big tires. It was exposed ground where there was sunlight. Now that was the response. Yeah. It was perfect. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. incredible. Yeah. Exactly what you wanted. Yeah. Nesting habitat, adjacent or in very close proximity to brood rearing habitat. And truthfully, we've had more turkeys on camera this year than than in I don't know, probably the last five years. Like cool. there there's a ton of birds. Right. A ton. Yeah. But we have much different habitat than what was there ten, five years right. ago. And that is changed. that is a function of I would, having not seen that property, I would bet you, the way you described it, two things. You have better nest success because you've made your nesting habitat more of a landscape feature and, and more randomized. Yep. And much, much higher brood survival because your brood cover is much better. Yeah. And that equals more turkeys, Absolutely. more quail, you know, more pheasants. You know what? You know what the world needs? <laughs> well, I, I can't even, I, well, I could give you a whole list of stuff. But. <laughs> Sunlight. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of romantic, isn't it? A little yeah. bit. Just kind of weird. We're sitting in a hotel. Well, <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but uh, but really. Yeah. That's that's what it needs. It, yeah. ne- it needs it needs a little bit of s- a disturbance to the soil to generate this weed production, or it needs a little bit more sunlight in in a closed canopy system. Maybe a little bit of soil disturbance or just removal of the duff layer or removal of the thatch. Yep. Thatch can be, let's just equate that real quick. Thatch can be a lot of grasses clumped up over time that have just laid over and laid over and laid over. And we call leaves duff. Duff, yep. Duff layer. That's just build up over time, over time, over time. Get that Get yeah. that gone. Yep. Why do you need that? It has it has zero function right. for, for any of the species we're talking about. They don't need that to nest. Right. You don't see you don't see hens laying and flipping leaves up over their back to nest in. No, right. they don't do that. You don't do they don't do that for quail. Nope. Get that gone. Get some sunlight there, and turkeys and quail will be loving you, singing yeah. your praise. Right. It's right. it's not it's not hard. It's not complicated. But take the steps now with the chainsaw with with a disc. Um, make that stuff happen. But you can totally do it now because what we're what we're wanting are are annual species that will spur on come mm-hmm. the springtime, maybe maybe March if you're down in the south or or in the Midwest. We're talking mid April to May. You're gonna see that thing yeah. pop. Yeah. And but again, going back to what we talked about is that progression of the spring and the maturity of those plants as they develop. That's perfect for the yeah. roots. It's it's a it's a synchronization of nature happening. Every single year, it's just, are you witnessing it or not? Or is your property um, a- allowing it to happen? If not, then then make it happen. Yeah. Do it right now. Yeah. yeah. You, c- you can change the Absolutely. course of the spring. The, the best time for, for promoting herbaceous annual weeds through through a disking operation or through prescribed fire would be from November through late February. Yeah. You know? So right now. If you could get a fire on the ground right now, great. If you can get on and do some disking now, great. You're going to see a great weed response coming up. Definitely. And and that, you know, when you mention sunlight, that's what the world needs more of. That, that spurred a thought that, that um, you know, all the species that we've talked about in this podcast, from white-tailed deer to pheasants to quail to, to turkeys, um, 
they need a veget not not so much white-tailed deer they 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 can use a little bit different but but they they need an herbaceous habitat layer yeah right they they need it they have to have it it's a critical part of they their component to. these are the species that we're most worried about and if you look at the landscape around that's the that's the layer that's most missing yeah. right so but it's 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 some of the easiest stuff to get yes, back. Yes, it is. It is. There's the, there's the caveat to that's it. That's right. It's some of the ease, most easiest stuff to get back through adding it, Yep. whether it's planting, whatever, or reducing what's there like a tree canopy, mm-hmm. and it'll come back. Yep. You know? So totally. It's, it, 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 it can happen, but it's, it's, the, it's the most limiting. It's the thing that's most limiting our game bird populations for sure is that yeah. habitat structure and composition is just not there. I'll say this to kind of wrap things up a little bit. You, you mentioned deer not necessarily having to have it, but what, what we talked about on the ride is there's a distinct difference between survival and thriving. Yes, right, right. And and if, you, if you're missing that component, that layer, vegetative layer, and you still have deer around, your deer most likely aren't thriving. Right. They're surviving. Deer are incredible at surviving. Look yep. at where they live. They're everywhere, yep. right? Congratulations. You have deer. Everyone's got deer. But are your deer thriving? And if you don't have this component that also supports rabbits, that also supports various songbirds, that also supports ground nesting birds like the quail and turkey we've been talking about, now all these things are thriving. Right. Or yep. having a component at least that they did not have before, but if we don't put value to it, then we're not going to encourage people to get out there and actually do it. Yeah, but right. it's it's so easy to do, but yeah. it's so easy to overlook, or it's so easy to say in in April time or June time. Oh gosh, I got a bunch of weeds out there. Don't don't bring yeah. out the bush hog. Yeah, don't mow it. Don't that mow is it. so important. Don't mess with it. Yes. Like how many how many times. Everyone stop and listen real quick. How many times or how many hours do you spend mowing? Y- yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. What's the what's the purpose of it? Right? You're just taking away habitat. Yeah. That that's super important to yeah. these species that we just named. That's why there's those big initiatives of, you know, put the bush hog in, leave it in the barn. Yeah, leave it in the barn. Thing. Yeah. Burn. Disc. That's what you need to be worried all about. All your management, if you're worried about wildlife on your property, all your management should have a specific goal or purpose for doing it. Yeah. If you're just bored on a Saturday afternoon and that field looks a little overgrown, let me go clip that. That's there's no purpose behind that. There's no take a nap. I don't care what yeah, you do, just don't do yeah, that. Heck, yeah, heck <laughs> yeah, take a nap. Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, just stay off that mower and yeah. I mean there's you know, we, we really I hope have have promoted the importance of this specific life cycle yes. of these birds that tends to be forgotten and the vegetation component structure height all of those factors that that is missing on the landscape that these critters critically need have um, to have. they have to have it quail have to have it turkey broods have to have it real quick i didn't didn't cover this but going back to let's say those numbers we had that um population of turkeys that was 100 strong right we had yeah. 75 that actually went ahead and nested right. if we have a 40 percent um 
success rate of some sort of poult numbers yep. actually being hatched. Um, 40%, that means 30 different hens actually produced poults. Mm-hmm. If they had each eight poults that hatched, which okay. would be an average clutch, I'd feel like. that That's fair. Probably, yeah. Let's just say those all hatched. This is the number... That like it goes, it goes, it gets worse and worse yeah, and worse, right? It does, yeah. So, so we've got seventy-five out of hundred that that actually were able to nest, and then we only had forty, and that was a, that was on the stronger end that that actually hatched. Um, now, go to the brood level. Now that they've hatched, the brood level survival um, after or before four weeks for turkeys is twenty-five percent. Twenty-five percent of Okay, we had the 30 birds that actually produced uh, a clutch, right. eight clutches. Right. Uh, so we had 240 poults on the landscape, then, right? right? Mm-hmm. Within this, let's say, study, 25% of them only survived the first four weeks. Okay. Now we're down to 60 birds. Yep. 60 poults out of 100 hens Okay. In, in this scenario. And those are real numbers. Sure. And that's only to the first four weeks of actual life. Right. 60 poults. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And and, and, and if we want to increase that 25% success rate, we have to have this type of cover. Yeah. But it got worse and worse. We went from 75 out of 100. Then then out of that, we had 40% out of the 75. And then we went down to 25. It gets worse and worse yeah. and worse. Yeah. But we ha- we can't forget about that middle ground. If we can take that middle ground up, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if we have, let's say, instead of 25%, if we double that, we have 50%, then we have... 480 pults. That's a lot of pults out yeah. there. Yeah. A lot of pults. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, um, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. These, these small changes in percentages of these numbers, like brood success or yeah. brood survival, makes a big difference when you're talking about a large number of birds on the landscape. Um, I know in Missouri, on our, on our brood study there, um, so some information that's that's going to be presented recently. Our our brood survival is not much different than what you quoted for the turkeys up to yeah. about 114 days. So mm-hmm. brood survival there is not great. But that was across five study areas, varied from really good brood habitat to terrible brood habitat, yeah, yeah. right, and pretty poor. So if we could take those five study areas and get them all to really good brood habitat. We could probably take that up a notch, right? Sure. And I, there's some research in tech in in a in Florida that showed that a small increase in in juvenile survival really made a large increase in the number of coveys available to hunt in the fall. It yeah. didn't take a very dramatic increase in the percent that survived over that over that landscape yeah. Yeah. to see appreciable numbers available to hunt in the fall. So I, I think I misspoke earlier. I, go, really? I went back in my head. I said, can't imagine that. <laughs> Believe it or not. Yeah. I like made Kyle. a mistake. Oh man. <laughs> I said, if you doubled the 25%, you'd have 480 birds, but the 25% got you the 60 birds out of the 240. Yeah. So instead of there being 480 birds, it would actually be 120, 120. Yeah. out of the 240. But still, that's twice the amount. That's twice the amount. So say you carry that to two, 
another year and a half out to where you're trying to hunt two-year-olds, and now you've got twice as many two-year-olds on the landscape. Screaming two-year-olds? Are you kidding yeah. me? That's Wouldn't awesome. Wouldn't you rather hear five two-year-olds one morning than two? Yeah, you know? That's absolutely. a big difference, right? That's a big difference. But but that's those are real numbers that, that we're dealing with, talking with. 25%, that, that's yeah. scary to think about. It is. It is. But, but the cool thing is we have the tools to increase these numbers. We do. We these birds do. are built to, if we give them the right habitat, they're built for explosive population growth. They're yeah. just ready to go. They're, you know, if we can, if, you know, if we, if I could control the weather, oh man, we'd have game oh. birds coming out of our ears, but I can't. <laughs> but um, given good weather, if we provide the habitat on, on the ground, they're built to take advantage they of are. it and. Let's they rock and roll. Let's are. do this. Yeah, no doubt. And that's super encouraging. And and truthfully, the tools that we need to be able to do this is is literally between our ears. Yeah. And it's not rocket science. It, it takes motivation and, and actually just application of that knowledge on the landscape to do it. Yeah. You know how you can accidentally do it, too. You know, you, right. You, you know what I mean? That's yeah. how easy Accident, it is. Yeah. And you know how much rocket science it not is it, it's it's <laughs> Scott. now i sound like the dork <laughs> this is gonna backfire my gosh this is gonna backfire you know how okay you know how easy it is kyle hedges does it this is his this he, is kyle can do this it. is his chosen it. profession that's true nothing else would have him except yeah. wildlife management and he can do it <laughs> i mean you, again go back to to the farmer who 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 got a rain and couldn't plant the field yeah Brood habitat. Brood habitat. Bang. Quail all over. Wow. Yeah. Pretty pretty simple, guys. Pretty simple. You said something to me earlier that um, talking about when you have really good brood numbers, um, the percent of population that that occupies for uh, in, in the quail, let's say, realm of things. Um, in Kansas, I don't know if it's this year or the year past, after a big boom spring and summer, what was the number or the ratio of birds that you guys harvested to adult birds um, in, in that population? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Over over a three-day – no, oh, excuse me, over over a weekend, over over two days, yeah. we harvested 30 bobwhites. Two were adults. So we can age them looking at their yep. wings very, yep. very accurately. Two were adults. So a couple things happened there. Phenomenal nest success – and or phenomenal brood habitat because they did have, of course, this is a Western landscape where too little rain is mm-hmm. a problem. Right. But they had enough rain that there was, if on the pastures, and this is rangeland, there was a flush of broomweed. There was a yep. flush of giant ragweed. I've got some really good pictures. Awesome. Not giant, excuse me, but of Common. Western ragweed. Western. Yeah. yeah. Western. I've got some great pictures of the stuff that we were hunting. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a great quail production. I mean- phenomenal you killed 30 bob whites and killed two adults that's pretty darn good yeah right that's absolutely you you know that the landscape and whatever management was happening or just its native um capacity to increase bird numbers or support support bird numbers and that habitat that they need at the time it was there yeah it was and it was it was native prairie native pasture sandy native pasture but it was a lot. It it had a flush of weeds. Yeah. There was a flush of weeds. It was a noticeable. A Missouri cattleman would be like, <laughs> "What? 
<laughs> what are all these weeds out oh here? Oh my gosh! Get yeah. the two four D. Yeah, John. But from John. A, <laughs> yeah, yeah, get the two four D. Let's spray oh. this. But from a quail perspective, it was phenomenal. Yeah. And you know what? Their cattle gained great. Incredible. They had great gains. Yeah. You know, because cattle will eat weeds. Absolutely. They will eat ragweed, and so Absolutely. um, the cattle benefited. They shine. Literally, yes. will shine oh, yeah. during right. the summer. Yep. Cattle benefited, quail benefited, and I benefited. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. Man, I I hope that this podcast really brought light to a need, a need for game birds, a need for habitat on the landscape, uh, but also equipped you guys with the right tools and knowledge to be able to go and actually make it happen. Yeah. Um, This is not obviously the only only time we're going to talk about broods and cover and this type of habitat we talk about all the time. But it's another great emphasis on the fact that it, it, it's simple to do, um, but impactful and extremely important uh, in the life cycle. If we want huntable populations out there, you yeah. have to have it. It's a necessary. It's a necessary point. So, Got to. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you have a chance, be sure to head over to uh, YouTube. And Instagram and Facebook, hit likes and shares and all that kind of stuff. Comments. We love the interaction. Um, hopefully, you're going to hear a podcast, too, from what we actually see tomorrow yeah. in the field um, and, and some of the management strategies that are going to take place and some of the goals that this landowner had and, and how we're going to help him work through that and develop a plan that's going to get him there. It's already already great property. They've had yeah. some incredible success there. So it'll be interesting to, to let's say, fine-tune these next few years um, so be sure to follow along, look for that. And um, guys, we just really appreciate you listening. We will catch you next week. Yeah.